Well, good morning. Uh, clearly, we majored on the announcements for this Sunday. It's, it's going to be hard to compete with the water guns, <clears throat> but I think Ron can do it. Ron Johnson is our storyteller for today. And the thing, did I hear some cheers already? <laughs> I didn't know you had a fan base. <laughs> or you've paid them handsomely. <clears throat> uh, the thing that I want to share about Ron is very few people are good with ideas and implementation. You know, some people are really good at implementing. They just want to know what to do, and they get it done. Some people just have all the ideas, and they live in this idea world. But Ron, on the other hand, really is both of those extremes. He's really good at ideas. He's really good at executing them. And uh, we have brought him onto the leadership team. Against all odds, somehow he found a way in. So here's Ron. Come on up and tell us a story. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. In a minute, uh, we'll, we'll read a uh, scripture from a well-known passage in John having to do with being uh, born again, and we'll close the service singing about that as well, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, my story today involves a, a birthday, and birthdays are something that we all get to celebrate when we're born physically, so, so we're, all, we're all in common there. What a coincidence that was. But if you're born again spiritually, sometimes we get to share stories of a loving spiritual father, a good, good father that we just uh, sang about. Uh, my story goes like this. I'll never forget the year uh, I got a birthday gift from God. It was April 2007. I woke up early, like 5.30 a.m. early. I remember having a troubling dream, but couldn't remember what it was about. I almost never remember my dreams. And at that moment, it seemed like a dark cloud rolled into my mind. I began feeling overwhelmed with regret over things that had happened years ago. Have you ever done something that you regret? For the next 20 minutes or so, I just laid there feeling more and more oppressed and accused, reliving the regret over and over. So finally, I decided just to get up and let's get on with the day. I didn't even realize it was my birthday until what happened next happened. You might say it was a coincidence, but I'm convinced it was a, uh, what we call God incidence. I stumbled into the bathroom, as I often do that early, and on my side of the counter is a daily verse calendar where there's a verse for every day and an inspirational uh, message. And to be honest, many days I don't even notice it and look at it. It had been there for four or five years. I think uh, Peggy or one of the girls got it uh, as a gift for a birthday, oddly enough. But on this day, I did notice it. And I walked up to it and I said, okay, Lord, what do you have for me today? And I flipped the page to April 21st. And here's what I read. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. 2 Samuel 12, 13. I was stunned as I looked at myself in the mirror. Now, I didn't have an affair or murder anybody like David, but that didn't really matter because I had just been swimming in regret, feeling oppressed, accused, and guilty the same way I imagined David was feeling when he confessed that to Nathan. And now I get this verse, today of all days. It was right then I heard that still, crystal clear voice in my head that said, happy birthday, Ron. And that's when I realized it was my birthday. In his loving kindness, God chased away a condemning attack of the enemy with a reminder of his amazing grace and love. I'll never forget the year I got a birthday gift from God. And that's my story. And as I said this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 3. Just curious, how many people bring their paper Bibles to church? Hardly. Okay, we got to. How many bring digital Bibles? All right, a lot of those, and the rest of you can follow along on the, the screen. I'll be reading from uh, John chapter 3, and these are the 15 verses right before we read John 3.16, and I'll be reading from the English uh, Standard Version. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, aren't you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't even understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Word of the Lord. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. And I want to invite all of us Uh, to get a little bit evangelical today. 
and we're going to talk about what it means to be born again. What is it? Why are we encouraged to be born again? Why is it an absolute necessity? Um, and we're in the series called uh, Son of God in the book of John. And, uh, you know, I don't feel comfortable with this term, so I kind of wrestled with this passage, and I had to use my imagination, kind of step into Nicodemus' Nicodemus's shoes and step into Jesus' shoes and feel sort of the uh, emotional dynamic, the framework of the conversation they were having. And somehow they end up talking about this idea of being born again. And the, some of the questions I had initially were, is this really a thing? Do people really get born again? And what is Jesus talking about? Is it some real world phenomenon or is this just some cryptic way? Is this a metaphor only? And so it applied back then, but it doesn't really work now. And if people use this term, it sounds archaic. It sounds irrelevant. It sounds kind of simplified and um, magical. It sounds like you're not having to do anything. You know, there's a kind of uh, uh, instant sort of feeling about this. It feels kind of like an escape mechanism. And I felt all these things about Christians and about evangelical Christians as I was growing up, as I was trying to process the faith for myself. I would see phrases like born again, and then I would compare it with the people who claim to be born again. And I just thought, you know, they're not really thinking people. They're not really smart people. They have all these issues. They're not really growing people. And then they just sort of use this term so that they feel good about slapping a label on themselves. You know, and it's a way to sort of create division between the haves and the have-nots or something like that. And so I kind of had an adverse reaction to this term, born again. And then as I began to uh, think about this passage more and I can't, began to reflect on my life, I began to see the relevance of this and it sort of began to pop off the page. And that's a similar experience that Nicodemus had here. And so verse 9, Jesus is talking about this idea and basically Nicodemus' reaction is, how can these things be? And I think that if you are honest about life and how it works and how people are, their human nature, uh, you should ask this question, how can this be? What does it mean to be born again? So I started sort of on a human level, and uh, I remembered reading a book about this years ago, so I began to search it, and I finally found it, batter Mainhoff Phenomenon. Does anybody know what this is? No. How many of you own a Toyota Prius? Okay. Before you had your Toyota Prius, did you notice them on the road as much as you did after you got your Prius? Right? So that's called the batter mainhoff phenomenon. It's kind of a, it's a subset of what they call a confirmation bias. When you suddenly start seeing things everywhere, it's like they were always there, but your brain sort of wakes up to it. And sort of on a neurological level, you have all this information coming at you all the time, and your brain can't make everything significant because then they don't know what actually is significant. 
right? So if there's real, clear, and present danger, they have to be able to, the brain has to be able to recognize that as something different, something you have to respond to rather than the background noise. And that's the uh, batter mainhoff phenomenon. We need to have this kind of awakening to things so that we're not just always on high alert. But I think being born again is something like that, but it's not quite just that. Recently, I, was, uh, I borrowed a power washer, and I was power washing my patio in the back. And uh, having a power washer in your hand is kind of like holding a hammer. You know, everything kind of, you wonder, what's a nail? What can I hit? That's how I felt with uh, the power washer. I just wanted to power wash everything. This thing was amazing. Why stop at my patio? So I power washed my grill. It was amazing. It worked. Now, I mean, it doesn't work anymore, but the, <laughs> the dirt is gone. And then I decided to power wash the trim around my garage, and it just ripped the paint right off. <laughs> this is sort of like how evangelicals are. They kind of wake up to Christianity. They wake up to something, and then they want to convert everybody. They sort of look around for bait and pray and ripe fruit, low-hanging fruit. What is it? What does it mean to be born again? And here's sort of my uh, one shot at it. It's not just what you see that changes, but it's how you see. It's not just what you see, but it's what you see with. Your eyeballs change. You have brand new eyeballs. You have brand new brains and brand new hearts. And the way you view the world, the way you experience reality fundamentally shifts. And what you thought was bad doesn't seem so bad. And what you thought was good doesn't seem so good anymore. So kind of a turning upside down of constructs and values and perspectives all happens sometimes in a flash. Sometimes it takes time. I don't think that's the point at all. But it's like you've been born again, meaning you're like a new person. You're a different person. And everything you know up to then in life, how life works, doesn't quite fully explain this transformation that you are undergoing or have undergone. And so you start gra uh, grasping at words, concepts, and metaphors that may help explain what just happened. And that's this idea of being born again. It seems appropriate to tell my conversion story. Uh, the first memory I have of any kind of spiritual experience is when I was in elementary school. And I've shared these stories before here, I think about four years ago. Uh, so I was in elementary school. I fell and I tore my knee open. And I went to Sunday school like this. And my Sunday school teacher, I still remember what he looked like. Uh, I thought he was really old back then, but I realize now he was younger than I am today. <laughs> he put his hand on my bloody knee, and he prayed for me. And as a little kid, and I came to America when I was uh, eight, so it was before that, so I must have been like five or six or something. And I remember just being shocked that he would touch my blood. And then I felt something. I felt something. 
something happening in my body, in my heart. I felt a sensation. Something happened, and I couldn't explain it. Nothing that had happened in my long life up to then could explain what just happened. And I still remember that. I, still just, I just got chills up and down my spine thinking about it because there was something real for me. And you can interpret that however you want, but right now I feel something, and I felt something back then too. Uh, number two, conversion story number two, I have four of these. I was in middle school, I was at a retreat, and uh, the preacher had preached a message about sin and our unworthiness or something, uh, you know, uh, classic evangelical like that. As a little kid, I didn't know anything, you know. I went outside, I looked up into the Pennsylvania night skies from New York City, and I saw these things called stars, which I had not seen. It's a joke. And I remember the sky looked dirty because there were so many stars. I just felt this instinct to clean because I have a little OCD in me, the sky. And I looked up and I just felt so small. And I remember just feeling like, wow, how can God love me? I'm so small. I'm so nothing, so insignificant. And I remember just feeling really, really undeserving of God's love. That's number two in middle school. Number three, I was in high school, and the preacher was preaching about sin. And he really sort of put the fear of God in me. And I remember I was praying after the message. We used to have these sort of prayer sessions afterwards. And for the first time in my life, I began to feel the gravity and sort of the dirtiness of my sin, the fact that I was a sinner, not specifically what I did, but who I was, that there was something wrong and broken and really fixable about my nature. And I felt that, and I felt a kind of hopelessness, and I felt a kind of fear of punishment, and I wrestled with that. That was conversion number three. And then when I was in college, uh, this, is, this would constitute my call to ministry. I was on the pre-med track and uh, really felt like I was supposed to be a doctor, Uh, But I remember just this feeling like God was calling me to something. And I had never felt called before, nor have I ever used that word. I didn't even use it back then. It just was this undeniable sense that I'm supposed to be a preacher or something to that effect. I didn't have categories in my mind. I was just a guy trying to get to med school. And but I sort of did a U-turn. I called my mom. She disowned me. You know, some of you heard that story before. Same old stuff. Um, and then uh, I would add a fifth one. I feel a kind of conversion in the last year or so. You know, I, I, I just, I don't know what's happened, but I feel awakened to spirituality in a way that was kind of rote and kind of dying or less uh, alive for me. But now the world feels different. The way I'm, I'm interpreting life, it just feels fresh, and there's a kind of I don't I didn't even want to say it. I don't want to scare it away. It's kind of like a wild animal. It's such a privilege. I don't want to do anything. I kind of want to stay still and be quiet. But if you ask me, I would say, yeah, I, I, I do feel like something's been happening, something beyond my own thinking and analyzing and chasing down. Something is happening to me. The game is coming to me. It feels outside in. And I'm not sure what it is. But these things, it feels to me like change that's fundamental. It feels like change that I could not have brought about on my own. And one of the tests for me is, can I 
unsee it? Can I unknow it? Or even, do I want to unknow it? Do I want to unsee it? And if God said, Peter, this thing that you've been experiencing for the past year or so, if you ask me to, I will snap my fingers and make it all go away. Would you want that? I would say, no, 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 don't touch it. This feels really precious to me. There's something kind of sacred and, there I say, supernatural about this experience I'm having. Not sure what it is, but I don't want to unknow it. I like this view better than my view before. Do I want God to undo what happened in college or high school or middle school or Sunday school? And I don't want to. And that's kind of a litmus test for me, that something good is happening. It doesn't mean that it's not painful. It doesn't mean that it feels good all the time. It just means there's a value I'm deriving from it, and I don't want to let it go. And I think this is the precursor to what the Bible calls repentance. So we're going to go all full-on evangelical, talk about this word a little too. To repent. In the Greek, it's metanoia. You know, it means to have a change of mind. We get the word metamorphosis from it. There's a fundamental change. It's a, it's a course correction. And he's, to use my, some of my own words, I would say it feels like growth. Another word that I think about is consciousness. Like, I feel more aware of things than I was yesterday. And I don't want to lose what feels to me like a higher level of consciousness. There's a kind of spiritual evolution, change happening, and I like it. And it feels like maturity. It feels like I'm growing up some. And I don't want to regress this feels like truth. At least it's more truthful than what I had before. And I want to lose truth. I don't want to know less. And also it feels like love. It feels like somebody's loving my soul. There's a lover of my soul doing the work. It doesn't feel accidental. It feels personal. Like somebody knows me, sees me, my wiring, who I am, who I'm not. Somebody's taking that into account. There's feels like there's a sense of timing to this kind of work that's happening in me, and it feels intelligent, loving. You know, I think that's, that's where maybe evangelicals got the idea of being in a personal relationship with God. It sounds totally dorky, I agree. But then when I'm pushed up against the wall, I'm trying to explain it, I think about the word personal, because it feels personal. It feels relational. Then I put those together, and I'm like, ah, I'm an evangelical personal relationship with a lover of my soul. That's Christ. That's what the Bible says it is. Now, these are just names that Christians and evangelicals historically and presently give to this experience of being born again. If you're not a Christian here today, I really believe you long for change in your life, maybe mostly for other people in your life, but how does it happen? How does change happen for them? You know, batter, main, half, phenomena, is that all you have? Is that all there is? Just sort of a, you know, oh, I got a Prius and now there's Priuses everywhere. Oh, look, another Prius. Is that it? Is that the extent of what change is? How, if you are not a Christian, what words do you use for awakening? You know, Buddhists use the word enlightenment, for example. 
You know, you get enlightened, kind of know more. But to me, it's not enough. Enlightenment really is more speaking centrally to the mind. You know something. It's cognitive. But what I'm experiencing, what I've experienced, feels more uh, pervasive than that. What words do we use? Uh, We are going to kind of ask these two questions and uh, answer them. Number one is, who is asking? And number two, for what? Okay. Go to verse one and two. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So let's answer the question, who is asking? It's Nicodemus. And here's what we know. You see the word Pharisees that I highlighted for us? It means that he was a religious person. He was a moral person. A Pharisee was a professional you know, follower of God. He did this for a living. He got paid to keep the law of God. He got paid to teach. He got paid to be an example. This was his all-consuming identity of Pharisee. Second, you see the word ruler. That means he had status. That means he was wealthy. He was powerful. Right? So he had position and power and a kind of moral superiority but now the third thing i want to point out this is where things kind of began to open up for me i'm not going to go into this side of the passage today but i want you to notice this in verse two you see the word for that's really really important because this gets at the heart of who nicodemus is this word for means that nicodemus is not just feeling a question He's thinking through the question and he's reasoning. So he says, Rabbi, we know. Okay, that's already like he's building an argument. We know that you are a teacher come from God. And he's not just saying that. He has a reason for it. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He is not just a religious person or a wealthy and powerful person, but he's a thinking intellectual. He's a reasonable, logical person. Now, this opened me up because now I can respect what he's saying and why. And I'm not going to go into this, but if you read the rest of the story on your own, you're going to see that Jesus is extremely logical. He sort of lays out all his thoughts. You know, if something is of the flesh, it bears fruit that's of the flesh. If something is of the spirit, it bears fruit that's of the spirit. That's not just words. That's logic. That's reason. So Jesus does this, and Nicodemus is right there on an intellectual level, and Jesus meets him exactly where he's at and talks to him as he needs to be talked to. I think it's phenomenal. And this is important, because all of this together tells me that this concept of being born again is not just for, as Tim Keller says, for a type of person. This is huge for me, because for me, until I began to understand this idea of being born again afresh, I had to be born again to the concept of being born again. I just kind of uh, dismissed this idea as apropos for a certain type of person. And I thought, you know, if you are kind of a person that avoids thinking 
and reasoning things out, then the idea of being born again is for you. You know, just slap that label on. Don't explain it. Don't think about it. It's, it's, it's God's mysterious ways. I was born again. Somehow it happened. I'm a changed person. You know, and uh, this tells me it's not just for that type of person. And I thought, you know, uh, being born again is for like the extremely bad people. Like you read, you know, stories about uh, gang members, you know, who are, uh, or pimps or murderers and these quote-unquote type of people, they have this dramatic experience, conversion experience, and they claim to be born again. I'm like, ah, yeah, I can see how you feel like it might be sort of you're born again. But notice who Nicodemus is. He's already religious. He's as religious, as spiritual, as devoted to God as you can possibly be. And yet, who is being born again here? It's that guy. It's like you're watching the pastor get saved. Isn't that awesome? This is the prayer of most congregations I know. Lord, please save our pastor. (laughs) I know you pray this every week for Pastor Bud. I just know this. I only know him as the finished product. He's wonderful. That was by all your prayers. True story, bud? Amen. Amen. (laughs) And it's poor people, people who are Pentecostal and charismatic at Vineyard. They're, They're Vineyardians, you know? They're sort of experientially focused and they just want to have feelings and kind of throw their body. They sort of make noises and move and, you know, things we don't do as real proper Christians in covenant churches. How many of you moved your feet during the worship set? Nobody. Right? Because we're all respectable Presbyterian type Christians. That's who we are. And yet, Here, Nicodemus is, he's wealthy. He's positionally powerful. And yet, he's having the conversion experience of being born again. That's crazy. It breaks all my paradigms of who owns the term born again. It's not just a poor, experientially focused person. It's not just a non-thinking person. It's not just an irreligious person. But it's the exact opposite. And I thought, you know, this guy could almost kind of be like me. You know, just a normal guy. Just an American person with access to resources. And he's just, why would he be born again? As far as the other people are concerned, he is the one that they want to be born again to become like. And yet he is being born again. And what that tells me is this is relevant to every single person in this room. All of us, we need a conversion experience of being born again. Especially Pastor Bud. (laughs) He's due for a renewal. You guys, channel some of your prayers for me to Bud. It's fun to pick on other pastors. I'm sorry. It may come up again. It's in me now. But here's uh, here's two really important things. Number one, notice this other word that I uh, highlighted for us in verse 2. This man came to Jesus. Don't miss this detail. When did he come? By night. night. What does that mean? What's the 
So I had to step into his shoes. Like, what is it like? Why did he come by night? And this isn't like, you know, modern society. There are no street lamps. So when it's night, it's dark. It's like really dark. You don't have flashlights. You know, they, they had candles. We you know the Bible talks about candles. They had lamps. But no light. And so it's dark. But what does it take for a really morally superior, wealthy, powerful, thinking person with a lot of social pressure to reject this sort of radical? What's happening inside of Nicodemus that causes him to go to Jesus by night? What's the, like the uh, physical thing that's happening? What's his posture like? You know, is he stomping? Is he making noise? Or is he kind of quiet? He tightened up his sandals, you know? He's trying to do this in secret. By cover of night is what I think by night means. He doesn't want to be seen by his peers or those that he rules. He doesn't hardly wants Jesus to know who he is. And that to me is the key opener for how we get born again. And that's what I want to finish on today. Nicodemus is asking a question. And this is point really number one is the most important place that we can be is in a place where we are asking something. Unless you ask, Jesus taught, you will not receive. Asking, you guys, is so powerful. There's a curiosity at least. But really, more likely, there's a kind of hunger. There's an inner provocation. There's something that's stirred within him. And he caught whiff of something. It's like a splinter in his mind, as Neo said in The Matrix. He feels he's onto something. There's something undeniable, something he's tried to uh, suppress, something he's tried to deny, but it just won't go away. So he gets desperate enough. And he finds a way to somehow fight through all the arguments of not ever interacting with Jesus. And he finds himself sneaking up to Jesus by night, by cover of night. And, you know, Nicodemus, he's the kind of person that has the moral and spiritual and intellectual resources to have tried everything. He's asked all of the questions he knows to ask. And there is one final thing. It's a matter of his heart. He wants to know, I have everything. I really have everything in my own eyes and in the eyes of others, and yet I have nothing. What am I missing? There's something I need. The job is not done. And so he comes to Jesus by night. So that's the first thing. This idea of asking is so very important. And then number two what Nicodemus learns here, and this is the real sort of conversion that happens for Nicodemus. It may not be for us, but it is for Nicodemus because he's a Pharisee. He learns this, that action doesn't matter. He already knew maybe that words don't matter as much as action, but he learns that his actions don't matter either, and he learns that his own intent doesn't matter. He learns this night that it's not about him at all. That this idea of born again is fundamentally passive. And if you want to be born again, it's something that is done 
to you that you did not ask for, that you could not have asked for, because you are by definition unconscious. And being born again is your awakening into a consciousness. So you are dead, as the Bible says, in your transgressions. You are unable to ask for the thing that you need. And yet it's happening because it's happening to you. It's later, uh, what he may have learned, is the grace of God, that it's by grace. And so there's some kind of stirring work in him. He gets in touch with his desperation, his hunger, and then he asks. It's a disposition. It's not necessarily literally a question, but it's an attitude that makes way for grace in his life. And so those are the two things, asking and grace. When you get to a place of asking, then, and I'm going to say this, then and only then can God's grace actually bear fruit in your life. This is the teaching of the parable of the uh, seeds. God's word, Jesus said, are like the seeds. You can scatter them all you want. God scatters his grace everywhere. God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil he taught. And yet, if the soil is not right, if it's not good soil, it yields no fruit or no lasting fruit in your life. You have to be hungry. You have to be asking questions. You have to be open. You have to suddenly care about something. You have to humble yourself and say, what I have is not enough. I need more. And so asking opens the way to grace in your life. Uh, verse 8. This is a cryptic little sentence. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. For years, I thought the last sentence went like this. So it is with the Holy Spirit. You don't know where the Holy Spirit's coming from. You don't know where it's going. That makes sense. That's all kind of, it all fits automatically. But that's not what Jesus says. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's talking about people. He says, when you are born again, what's happening is you are in a place of asking where you're willing to come by cover of night, risk your career, risk everything you have to ask, to seek, to knock, to find, right? And when you do that, God's grace suddenly becomes powerful in your life. And because grace is not from you, because you are being acted upon, because you are passive, you don't know now where you're going to go. You don't know what you're going to do. There's a kind of free movement in your life. You're not predictable anymore. You don't fit the formula anymore because God's spirit now is bearing fruit in your life. It's his grace at work. And I may say it that way, that God's grace in your life opens all the doors in your life and you don't know how to plan for your life anymore. But if you are in charge and if everything in your life is just your doing, if you're just sort of the wealthy, powerful, intellectual person that Nicodemus was, and you stay there, your life is totally predictable. 
But when there's grace in your life, it opens up in a totally different way. And this was the lesson that Nicodemus was learning. Um, I want to put a little caveat to this quote I'm going to read. Uh, It's a book by a man named Mark Russell. He's not a Christian, but he undertook the task of writing the Bible, translating the Bible in his own language. And uh, I loved it. And uh, there are a lot of curse words in it, but never gratuitous. It's sort of, it's totally called for. And he uses it only to be efficient, to get to the point. So if you have the chops, I'm recommending this book. If you don't, I'm not recommending this book. He did a little survey, and he talks about this survey in the last part of his book. Uh, He says, after I wrote a draft of the book, I sent it out to many, many different kinds of people, and my number one fans were all pastors, And my number two fans are all Christians. The non-Christians didn't really care for this book. And so even though he's not a Christian, he's an atheist actually, his biggest fan base are pastors and Christians. In a Bible, he translated using a lot of curse words. So you figure that one out. But I want to just summarize, uh, read a little section that summarizes the whole deal with Jesus as uh, Mark understood it in the Gospels. Jesus saw adultery, murder, and materialism as the natural consequence of letting yourself be consumed with lust, hate, and greed. And that's just like your life, math. You know, it works. If you're in charge of it, that's what happens. To Jesus, it didn't do you much good to constantly resist temptation. You suffer more from unrequited desires than the ones you actually give into. And sooner or later, you'd probably act on those desires anyway, making all of that self-denial meaningless torture. The only solution, in Jesus' opinion, was to change your heart so you weren't full of awful thoughts to begin with. To Jesus, it did as much damage to your soul to want to kill a man as it did to actually murder him. And this is the idea of being born again. That it's not just that you are forcing yourself to think better thoughts, but your heart actually is changed so that the thoughts you think are of God automatically, naturally. And that's the level of conversion that we call salvation. When we are made new, we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Application and conclusion here for what? Verse 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Think about one person in your life that you find yourself hoping will awaken and change. Who in your life do you want changing more than anyone else you can think of? It could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a pastor. And let me ask you the question, how will this person ever change? What will it take for this person to change? Over and over and over again, what we see in the New Testament as evangelicals believe is that if you want to be saved, that is converted, if you want to be born again, the key thing 
In fact, the only thing that counts that you must do is this little word in verse 15, you have to believe. You don't have to do something. You don't have to be something. But you have to believe. And that's the Bible's word for coming to a place of asking. Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That's not because Jesus doesn't know. It's that your faith is required because your faith is a demonstration of your asking posture. It's the beginning of every single conversion experience. You have to somehow know the paradigm that I have doesn't work. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm desperate. I will come by cover of night. I will come by light of day. What do I have to do? I just, I need to know. And when you get into that place, that's when change, and only when change can possibly happen. And so that person you were thinking about, that's what you pray. Say, God, I am just watching a train wreck happen. I can't do anything. The forces of that train are way beyond me. If I jump in, I'm going to get crushed. If I nag, if I try, it's not going to work. It's actually going to cause friction, and it's going to maybe break the relationship. What do I do? All you pray is, God, I pray for them to come to a place of asking. Unless they're asking, unless they're coming into awareness, nothing's going to happen. Because the moment they begin asking, it opens the door. The praying, the asking, the seeking opens the door to grace. Now the soil is good. And the grace of God can come in. And now we don't know what's going to happen. Because all great stories, all great inventions, all great origin stories have grace and serendipity in them. It doesn't matter if they're Christian stories or not. There's not been one scientific discovery, in my opinion, that wasn't riddled with serendipity. Accidents, happy accidents. Every good thing in your life, you did not plan for it. Some other thing happened. And that's grace in your life. You have to have a way to explain that. And that's God's grace, that's God's love for you. That's an intelligent, loving, truthful being engaging with you personally, inviting you to a relationship with him. That's to be born again. We uh, began this sermon series with the word logos, you know, this idea of logic or meaning or truth. And I'm telling you, if you will ask logos, the meaning, the answer, the truth comes into your life in a fresh, new way, but only if you are asking. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as I stand here to pray and I'm kind of running through the sermon in my head, I'm thinking about the passage again, and in my mind's eye, I see the picture of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. He's excited, he's nervous, his adrenaline is pumping, and he still feels calm. And Jesus meets him exactly where he's at, and Jesus responds to this step of faith on Nicodemus' part. And somehow, I don't know the the ending of this story, but I feel like something happened to Nicodemus. There was some seed of grace in his life that was planted. And he began to see that all of that action and activity in his, on his part doesn't amount to something that's sufficient. 
And he's awakening that, to this reality that he has to be born again, that he has to receive, he has to be passive. And change can happen. And really, the, the seed, the grace that's lifted up is this uh, truth that Jesus has lifted up in his heart. This man come from God. So I pray that for all of us, we would have this kind of conversion experience where we have achieved things, we have done things, and none of it kind of stacks up. And then as Jesus gets lifted up in our hearts, somehow there's a kind of fresh new life, an eternal life that begins to be birthed in us. Feels, tastes like eternal life. So I pray that for all of us in this room. And I want to give you all a chance. If you are here in this room and in your heart you say, you know, my life, it's just, it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not what it's meant to be. And I'm tired of it anyways. I really do want to know what it's like to live with and to and for Jesus, the lover of my soul. If that's you, if you identify with Nicodemus today, um, in your heart, acknowledge that. If you want, you can lift your hands up real quick and just act on it physically. If you have an issue in your life that you just feel stuck in, say, God, I can't solve this problem. I can't get past it, but I, I need help. God, would you help me? Would you pray that prayer? And lastly, if there's somebody in your life that you really, really are desperate for, you want so badly for them to change. Would you lift them up in your prayer right now? Say, God, bring them to that place where they are asking. God, I pray for all of us that you save us just as you have always been doing, no matter what nomenclature words we use to describe your work in our life and in the world, we pray that you would do it, that we be born again in Jesus' name. Amen.